just way of explanation for those of you visiting us tonight. Uh, I've preached systematically through Old and New Testament. I started in John's Gospel three years ago. I intended to do one term on it. I got stuck, and then I decided I'd try and finish it. I was supposed to finish it by Christmas. Then I was supposed to finish it by Easter. I got stuck. I got stuck again tonight on a verse that wasn't intending to preach on. It's a verse that's puzzled me for the last two weeks. And it may well leave you completely puzzled and bewildered at the end of it. Um, It's a a part of John chapter 18, where uh, just a little phrase uh, really struck me and made me think uh, about uncleanness. And I'm going to explain why that made me think. And then there's a bit of a discussion between Pilate and Jesus. And Pilate says, what is truth? And that has caused me quite a lot of thinking over the last uh, fortnight. I read something on the internet. Uh, You may have uh, come across this as well. In 1997, a 14-year-old student in America, Nathan Zona, won a prize for his project on dihydrogen monoxide and the dangers of dihydrogen monoxide. A colorless, odorless, tasteless chemical that kills uncounted thousands of people, mostly through accidental inhalation. And he puts this out. You will know, because some of you are more intelligent than me, that dihydrogen monoxide is H2O. Two hydrogens, one oxygen. It is water. But what Nathan Zona put out was the dangers of dihydrogen monoxide. It is the major component in acid rain. It contributes to the greenhouse effect. In its gas form, it causes severe burns. In its solid form, it destroys parts of the body which may then drop off. It contributes to the erosion of natural landscape, destroying environments. It causes metals to dissolve, wrecking and damaging machinery. It has been found in excessive quantities in all dead people. According to the internet, thousands of people have signed a petition for the American government to ban the use of dihydrogen monoxide. (laughs) And this little boy won a prize for doing that. And it's made me think, at least this passage in John made me think, how do I know if I believe a conspiracy? Many of us will be worried about somebody we know because we feel they believe a conspiracy. Some of us will be worried that the rest of us don't believe something that we ought to believe. How do I know 
whether I believe a conspiracy or not. And I have gone round and round in circles with this, and I'm going to share my ignorance. Now, I hope give you some things to ponder. And as I was thinking this, how do I know what the truth is? Because Pilate says to Jesus, what is the truth? What is truth? And uh, I spent quite a lot of time thinking about this. And then throughout Saturday, Friday night and Saturday morning, events in our nation really caused my brain to ache. What is truth? What is free speech? What is going on? I want to come back uh, in a few minutes to Gary Lineker and the BBC. And what kind of questions might we ask ourselves as to whether what we believe is true or not? How can we know? So, where on earth did this come from in the Bible? Well, we've been in John 18, which we were meant to be in a year ago, but we're still here. And uh, John 18 is the arrest of Jesus, and uh, he says, you know, just take me peacefully. And he's taken to the chief priest's place, and uh, they uh, 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 inquire of him. And we looked at this in previous weeks. You can find all of these sermons wherever you get podcasts iTunes, Spotify, you can look in Sutton Colford Baptist Church, you'll find all of these things. If you want to watch them, you can see them all on our YouTube channel. Just Google Sutton Colford Baptist Church, you'll either get our website, YouTube channel, you can look at all of this. We looked at this the last time I talked about this and the dis- discussion between the leaders and um, Jesus and how they didn't have a witness, but at the same time as them not having a witness, and Jesus says, you, you're doing this trial wrong in a sense, and they, they, they slap him around the face, and then at the same time, Peter is denying him, and we talked all about that. And this is where we get to, the next verse. This was meant to be just a small introduction to the main thing, but I got stuck on this verse because it just kept going round in my head. And you are going to go, this is a, a, a strange verse. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. Remember, this is being written by a Jewish person. He's saying, then our leaders, is really the best translation, then our leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace, um, took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now, it was early morning. Now, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Now, I am sure most of you are perfectly sane and normal people, and you need to read that and go on to the next verse. But I have this tick where I ask myself questions, and I think, hey? And I wanted to know, what was this ceremonial uncleanness? And why did they think this? And why would they stand on the front garden or on the porch? Or why didn't they go in? What was that about? Because I couldn't think where that came from in the Bible. So I asked myself, is this what the Bible taught? And if it is or it isn't, what might it say to us? Well, when we look at whether it is what the Bible taught, and I have asked other people to look into this, and I have read and read and read, which is unusual for me. Not in the Old Testament at all. There is no biblical foundation for them not going in. 
What was going on? Well, let's just say what the Bible does tell us about this phrase, uncleanness. In the Old Testament, there are two big areas of uncleanness. The first is what we would now recognize as to do with hygiene and health. In other words, some of the Old Testament laws at the beginning of the Bible are there that we would say is good hygienic practice. And the way blood is handled, the way certain uh, foods are or aren't cooked, are or aren't eaten. And so most of that, we can say, is to do with hygiene. And one of the particular things is how they handled blood and how they handled dead bodies. But as the Old Testament develops, uncleanness becomes a bigger phrase to mean a heart that is not pure for God, not 100% for God. So uncleanness becomes um, an expression to say someone is two-timing God, is committing adultery, if you like, heart idolatry, and is not repenting. Now, there's a tiny little thing that this day when they will stand outside and they won't go in, and you're all going, why are you obsessing about this, Donald? This day was the Passover, which was a, and is, a great celebration of the day in which God passed over and spared the people of God's eldest child and the people of God were told in the Old Testament to prepare for that celebration by not having yeast in preparation and the idea would be that the, the, uh, they would remind themselves that the people of God had to leave quickly and just the bread wasn't properly cooked and they had to take it away so at a Passover you have unleavened bread, bread without yeast. And that was part of this. So they were told, you know, just for a couple of weeks, before you uh, celebrate the Passover, don't have anything to do with yeast. But why didn't they go in? Why wouldn't they go in? It would appear that we're guessing that it was to do with they were afraid of something. The first thing is they might have been afraid that in some way they would get yeast on them. I don't know, that some way they'd walk in and the Romans would have a handful of yeast and blow that in your face. Or that there may be yeast on the floor or yeast on the door handles or somehow they'd sit on a seat that had yeast because all of us leave yeast lying around, don't we? They, it is possible they were obsessing about yeast. But we also know that there was a belief around that the Romans kept dead bodies in their wardrobes, often dead babies. There was a conspiracy theory that the Romans would have a dead body in there. And therefore, if they went near this dead body, they would have broken the Old Testament law. Or if by some chance a piece of yeast flew onto them without them knowing, they wouldn't be able to celebrate the Passover. They had a conspiracy theory. And it meant they wouldn't go in. Now, you're not worried about yeast. Hopefully you're not worried about dead bodies. But there are loads of things that people get worried about, don't they? 
How do we know whether we should be worried or we shouldn't be worried? How do we know whether what we think is obvious is actually wrong? How do we know whether we believe a conspiracy theory? Their fear had got out of control. They were afraid of contamination. They were afraid of superstitions. What do we mean by a superstition? A superstition is something that we do that we think will protect us if we do it or harm us if we don't do it. One of the most common ones that you'll see is if you watch football, I know it's very hard to do that this weekend, but were you to be able to watch football, uh, when the players come onto the pitch out of the tunnel, you will see in most games, you will see a footballer hop as he, walks, as he jumps onto the pitch. You will see it at a substitution. They will hop. Sometimes, if they're doubly superstitious, they will hop onto the pitch and cross themselves. Why will they do that? Because footballers believe that somehow it's good luck to enter the pitch with a hop. Now, we may laugh. I promise you, go and watch it. You'll see it. Virtually every team will have a hopper. A superstition is something that we think, if I do this, I'll be okay. Or if I don't do it, I'm in trouble. And uh, I'm not going to ask you, but how many of you touch wood? Or say it? Or think it? Or maybe you have some other little ritual or thing that if I don't do... I feel uncomfortable and I feel scared. How do we know what's true? Will hopping make you win your match? What's going on? They, it would appear, believed a conspiracy. A conspiracy that the Romans were waiting to throw yeast at them. Or a conspiracy that they had dead babies or dead people lying around in their homes. And they'd got confused priorities. They had got so obsessed about being clean for the Passover that they had to stay outside that they obscured the fact that it was perfectly okay for them to murder an innocent person. Ramsey Michael says this, the scene is heavy with irony. Those bringing Jesus to Pilate are so scrupulous about the laws of purity that they will not even enter the praetorium. That's the, the word for the Roman palace. Yet their scruples did not extend to murder. Hey, we're right with God because we haven't gone anywhere near yeast. We're killing people, though. Anyway, what happens next is that Pilate says to them, he comes outside and he says, what charges are you bringing against this man? And they say, if he were not a criminal, we reply, we would not have handed him over to you. They were an occupied nation. They did not have the authority or the right to kill anyone, to execute anyone. Only the ruling power, the, the government, the Romans could execute. They wanted Jesus executed. They wanted Jesus executed because they considered that he had committed blasphemy in his way that he talked about himself as if he was God. But the Romans weren't going to crucify or kill him for blasphemy, so they had to decide to persuade the Romans that he was claiming to be the king. Pilate said to him, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. 
They said that we have no right to execute anyone. They objected. And then there's a discussion between Jesus and Pilate about whether he's a king. And I want to come back to that the next time I'm preaching. That was going to be the sermon for tonight, but I got obsessed on why they wouldn't go in the door. So we'll come back to that in a little bit. But at the end of that discussion, which we'll do next time, Jesus, uh, Pilate says these words, What is truth? What is truth? With this, he went out again to the, to the, to the Jewish people. Remember, this is being written by a Jew. He went out to us is what John is really saying. Us, the people who believe in God, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against them, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. And also Beasley Murray says, in their zeal to eat the Passover lamb, they unwittingly helped to fulfill its significance through demanding the death of the Lamb of God at the same time shutting themselves out from its saving efficacy. What is truth? Very often I stand on the edge of this platform. If I stand on the edge on one foot now, you will have different opinions as to whether this is a good thing for me to do. I know because I get it. If it was a baptistry, I'd just love to stand on one foot by the edge of the baptistry. We'll do that in a couple of weeks' time when we've got a baptism. Because I know that some of you can think of nothing else other than me falling off. And I just secretly enjoy that. So you may have an opinion as to whether it is a good or a bad idea for me to stand on one leg. You may feel it's absolutely fine. You may feel it's wrong. I want to just explore as a little digression, what is the difference between facts and opinions? The fact is that I'm standing on one leg in the evening service on, uh, what's today's date? 12th of March, 2023, Donald stood on one leg for quite a while. That's a fact. Now, you will have a difference of opinion whether that's okay or bad. Bad example, setting up that. But suppose some of us felt there was a bad example, and you felt people weren't listening to the fact that you felt was a bad example, and you wanted to stop me standing on one leg. And so you say, the problem with Don standing on one leg, you know, he stood on one leg in church, and do you know what? He fell over. He fell off the platform, and then he fell on top of the Coulter family who were there innocently sitting there, and he hurt them and damaged them, and he caused all kinds of injury. Now, you may want people to join your petition to stop Donald standing on one leg. And people aren't taking you seriously. So you say, look, he's caused this problems. I was there, I saw he fell off and he, he hurt himself. Now that is when an opinion has created something that's not true. Because I haven't fallen off. You've all seen, I haven't fallen off. And we need to know always the difference between what's a fact and what's an opinion. Opinion is something where we are interpreting a fact in different ways. And we disagree. And that's fine. We can debate at the door whether it is a good idea for me to stand so close to the edge as I'm getting older and older and decrepit, or whether 
in the senior years of my ministry, I should stand back here and remain on two legs, perhaps with a couple of brackets holding me down. We can debate that. That's an opinion. But what is a fact is that I did stand on one leg and I didn't fall over. That's a fact. We need to know the difference between facts and opinions. How do I know whether what I believe is a conspiracy, in other words, it's rooted in something that isn't true? Do I have an opinion that is based on something that isn't true? Because that's a conspiracy. Where might my fears be out of control? And this seems to me such a fundamental question for me to ask myself. It's very easy for us to look at other people and go, they are believing things that are not true. Really easy. In fact, most Christianity is very easy to go, they're getting it wrong. But that's just not really reality. The real question is, am I? Am I? Do I believe something that I shouldn't? Or should I believe something that I have dismissed as a conspiracy? Kierkegaard says there are two ways to be fooled. One is to believe what isn't true. The other is to refuse to believe what is true. So how do we check our fears and beliefs? They didn't have any good reason not to go in. No wonder Pilate's going, I don't even know what truth is. You're standing outside for no good reason. Why are you doing that? How do we check our fears and beliefs? Where do conspiracies come from? I want to suggest two or three things just to ask ourselves and to check for and to try and work out where they come from. And the first thing where they come from is when we are trying to find a way of controlling life and stopping bad things happening. So the conspiracy will say, this is the cause of the suffering. This is the cause of the problem. If you do this, don't do that. If you hop as you go onto the pitch, you will win. So when we hear things that say, this is the cause of our suffering, our cancer, our economic problems, our decline of the church. We're at risk of saying, okay, that's the problem, fix that, and everything will be okay, and I'll be okay. The world is broken. It's not going to be sorted by you hopping onto the pitch, or me hopping onto the pitch. So the first thing to say is, is my, some of my beliefs, are any of them to do with trying to create a very safe bubble in which I live? It's just a question to ask ourselves. The things we hold strongly, the things we're going, why don't they do this like me? Or why are they doing that? Are we trying to manage things and make it secure and make it safe and make it predictable? Second area of conspiracy theories is that they have a scapegoat. They have a person or a people to blame. And it's similar. 
that if we can find and lay every single problem on these group of, this group of people or this type of person or this individual, maybe everything will be all right. When we find ourselves reading something on Twitter, and it gets us so angry. That's unjust. How is that being allowed? And it's like as a little, uh, what's the word I'm like, handle, winding us up. Put all your blame and anger on this group of people, these people, this person. We're in danger. The leaders put all their blame on Jesus. It's all his fault. We're under occupation. Everything's going wrong. He's to blame. And then thirdly, and perhaps most significantly, are we being manipulated for someone else's benefit? The thing that we are being encouraged to believe because it keeps coming into our social media feed. It's getting us angry and it's getting us afraid and it's getting us worked up. Have we worked out who makes money out of it? Whose site is it? Who's paying for that news outlet? Who gets money because we click on that news outlet because there's big money in frightening people so how do we check our fears and beliefs who do we believe well we when it comes to the contamination and and, and let's look at it spiritually we take our authority from the intended meaning of the scripture. Now, I want to use and underline that phrase, intended meaning, because many conspiracy theories take a verse out of context and make it say something that the writer didn't mean it to mean. We've just talked about one of the classic ones. Fascism blamed the Jews for crucifying Jesus and therefore anti-Semitism was allowed. But every time the New Testament used the word Jew, it was by a Jew saying us. In other words, it was saying we, the people of God, crucified Jesus. So the intended meaning isn't and never was Jews are bad people. The intended meaning was those of us who think we follow Jesus are the ones who need to look at ourselves. The intended meaning of Scripture is really, really important. And the second thing that I believe very strongly, and in the questions of life series that we did online where Kath wheedled out of me all kinds of controversial things that I came to regret saying as my inbox and my email uh, filled up with people disagreeing with me. But one of the things that I have said a lot when we talked about conspiracies during the pandemic is the importance of looking for experts from credible 
independent institutions. It was a period when there were a group of people in our nation who wanted us to believe that experts were wrong because it suited their financial gain that they would make. What do we mean by independent institutions? I mean sites, websites, people, groups, organizations who don't make money out of their opinions. You might come up with your own, but I, I had three. And this was all fine until Friday afternoon. I had three. The first is high-rating universities. People who don't make money out of their opinions, they just research and study and educate, and those are challenged by students and research, and sometimes over years those ideas change. But in the main, someone from a good university that you have heard of, who is an expert in their field, will probably know more than that person you follow on the internet. Second institution, in my opinion, is the National Health Service. They'll make mistakes, but in the main, they don't get money out of it. They're here to advise us on the basis of research and what is the best way to live. And lots of you work in that profession, and it's incredibly difficult and demanding. But in the main, we trust, because they're not making money out of it in the UK. And my third institution, which I believe passionately is one of the most important institutions in Britain that we must preserve, is the BBC. Because they don't make money out of clicks. They make money out of us all paying a license fee. And they don't, everything they say has to be checked, has to be weighed, and everybody comes in if they get it wrong. And sometimes they do get it wrong. But it's corrected because they have to be impartial. And then I had to rewrite the next bit because of what was going on yesterday. And it made me think, well, what is this whole debate about free speech and impartiality. And it feels like there are two great idols in our world. Free speech, impartiality. And, I, and how do you weigh these two things? If you haven't heard anything about what Gary Lineker has gone on and whatever, um, I'm not going to explain it. It's just a thing that's happened in the last 24 hours. It's quite a disturbing thing. What is this? I want to say some things quite clearly. I don't believe free speech or impartiality are the top of the table. There's something that comes above it from the Bible. It's truth and love. The truth is I'm standing on one leg. It's an opinion whether it's good and bad. But don't say I fell over. Because I didn't. So... Free speech, to me, cannot allow lying. It cannot. It is not okay to say things that aren't true. We need to know the difference between an opinion and a fact. You may say that that person's not true, but actually it's their opinion, so we need to know the difference. But you cannot allow anyone to say anything that isn't true, in my opinion. And love 
is crucial. That is the command. We've discovered that. That's why Maundy Thursday is Maundy Thursday. It's the command from the Latin to do with Maundyishness, this stomach commanding. The most important thing is to love. And therefore, free speech cannot allow hate. You cannot say things that incite others to hatred or violence, or could incite others to hatred or violence, or that deeply damage a person that hears them. It's really important the way we speak about people, the way we speak about migrants, the way we speak about politicians. It's really important that it is done with love. And that the words are not words that incite fear or hatred or abuse. But free speech is really important to allow the voiceless to be heard. Because those who are oppressed and those who are suffering and those who are hurting must be heard. And if they're not themselves able to have a voice, then the prophets speak on their behalf. Free speech must allow the voiceless to be heard. Free speech must allow disagreement to be heard. Different opinions. You are allowed to say, please, Donald, don't stand on one foot on the edge of the platform. I find it distressing. You're equally allowed to say, please continue to stand on one foot on the edge of the platform. I'm looking forward to you falling off. It'll be hilarious. Free speech. We stick to the facts, but we have difference of opinion. But if you were to go around whipping up people to say, you know, I think we need to put Donald out of his misery, because that standing on one foot is really dangerous and damaging. And you whip up a crowd to take me outside and take off my legs so I can't stand on it anymore. That's a problem. Opinion mustn't create hatred. And what about impartiality? Impartiality must allow both points to be true, uh, be heard if it's true and loving. Impartiality is saying, here are the two points. I'm a passionate believer in the BBC because if you go to America or many other countries, you will have a news station for the right and a news station for the left and all the people who believe in the right watch that one and all the people who believe on the left watch that one and everybody's in an echo chamber where their ideas get uh, reinforced and nobody really understands the other point of view because nobody ever explains what the other people believe. And we have one of the most privileged things in the world. If you ask people around the world what the World Service, BBC World Service, means to them, because we, by law, they have to say both views. And that may upset governments, but we mustn't allow governments to silence it. Impartiality must present facts and opinion without persuasion. The news must tell us the facts and the different ways of interpreting those facts and make, allow us to make our own decisions. Not a newspaper or a, or a website funded by 
people who want Brexit or people who don't want Brexit. Not a news site that's funded by the left or the right. Not a news site that's funded by people who have an agenda, but news where both sides are put on it. So the events of the last 24 hours I found deeply disturbing. I will let you work out what you think about your conclusions to the situation. But I believe that impartiality is essential for the news. It's essential that people who give us the news are giving us both sides. Whether personally I like it or not, I believe it's essential as long as it's true and loving and clear that entertainers have free speech and that a government doesn't shut down an entertainer because they say what they don't want to hear. As long as it's, not a, as long as it's an opinion, not a misplaced fact, as long as it's said with grace and love. So where do we go as we draw to a close and, and Sheila comes to lead us in responding? How do I know if I believe a conspiracy? How do I know if I disbelieve the truth? Where might my fears be out of control? Let's briefly go back over those four areas just to lead us in practically. Was the biggest area, perhaps, just for tonight, is contamination. Where is it that we're afraid of being contaminated? They wouldn't go in because they were afraid. Where is that in our lives? Now, there are lots of us who have various concerns about hygiene, and we're on different spectrums around our hygienic practices. And I'm aware, too, that for some of us, when life is anxious, that kicks in with our hygienic practices and, and, and we might acknowledge that there are times when we, we go too far and it becomes an OCD thing. And I don't want to, to talk about that uh, critically or negatively, that's just a condition that some of us experience. But what I would say is that we should try not to go beyond the consensus on hygiene. Whatever our fears, Let's question ourselves when we have a hygienic view that is way beyond what other people think. Let's not believe rumours. There isn't yeast or dead bodies in the Roman palace. But we may be more afraid about contamination on a spiritual level. If I associate with these people, if I go to that place, if I, if I, if I read that book, if I... Uh, have that person in my home, will I be contaminated? If I am to remain pure, must I disassociate with from the people who live a lifestyle that I don't agree with? Well, it's important for us to look for unhealthy influences where someone is influencing us to behave in an ungodly way. That is helpful for us to look at. But we are to be, to be in the world as a good influence. Jesus, we looked at this earlier, Jesus has sent us into the world. He's not told us, stay on the outside. We talk about front lines. He has told us to go into the world. He has told us to get our feet dirty. To be in the awkward and messy places. And yes, to think, am I contaminated by the sin of this world? As long as I'm not influenced by it, 
It is the places we need to be because we are to be the good influence. We are to be the friend of sinners. If we removed ourselves from every sinner and we just live with Christians and we live this pure, holy, uncontaminated life, we have failed Jesus because he tells us to be the friend of sinners. And if other people say to you, why are you there? Why are you at that party? Why are you eating with that person? Why are you drinking with that person? They're only saying what they said to Jesus. And the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. 1 John 4, 4. If we are afraid of contamination, we need to remember that purity is not withdrawal. It is love and grace. It is in relationship. It is in the messy places that we are pure. It is not judgment and condemnation. That is not what Jesus does. That is not what the followers and disciples of Jesus need to do. If we think we are pure because we know all the people who are wrong and we tell them so, we're failed. That's not purity. That's like being frightened of yeast, but it's okay to kill Jesus. Purity is walking alongside and listening. It is not fear and avoidance. As long as it's not influencing us, then we will be influencing them. Superstitions, we've already kind of touched on this. If there's something bad we think we can do, if we hop before we come into church, we're in real trouble. I don't know what your superstitions might be, but remember that it's going to rain on you whether you've crossed yourself, touched wood, hopped, avoided the ladder, looked after the mirror, wearing your lucky underpants or your lucky socks or whatever it is, it's still going to rain on you. And conspiracies, well, we've talked about that. But where is what we believe counter to what other people believe. Let's ask ourselves some questions. When we think everybody else is far too comfortable with this and I'm the one that sees the danger, let's ask ourselves some important question. Who taught us and has my fear or anger been manipulated? What money do they make out of this idea? Are they credible? Are they independent? And how are they playing on my emotions? I suspect we probably all believe a conspiracy somewhere along the line. It's not everybody else. There'll be something. We need to bring our fear or anger to God. Lord, bring me into truth. I want to live by truth. I don't want to live by fear. I don't want to live with anger. I don't want to, I want to live in truth. And lastly, our confused priorities. They thought it was good to avoid yeast, and they thought they needed to avoid the yeast, but it was okay to kill Jesus. Religious people, of which we are the most vulnerable, because I don't know about you, but I'm religious. We get obsessed with a minor thing of doctrine. We speak with the tongues of angels, but we have not love. And Jesus says, you are a clanging gong. Where is it that we are obsessing about some matter that the church really needs to agree with me or the house group or the small group or the other people or the world 
and we're not acting as Jesus acted. Purity submits to compassion. If we think we are pure but we have not compassion, we are liars. Moral indignation is not above grace. Grace has to prevail and fear must not be above trust. I'm going to ask Sheila and the band to rejoin me and we're going to pray together. How do I know if I believe a conspiracy? Am I on the outside frightened of what is going to happen? And can I tell the difference between opinion and fact? Who is teaching me? Let's stand together. Let's pray. Lord, we bring to you our lives. We long to be living in truth. Will you help us to be able to discern truth? Help us to challenge and question ourselves. We pray for those we are afraid have got into conspiracy theories. Will you set them free? But will you help us to take out any log that is in our own eye? Help us to discern. Help us to recognize ideas or influences that are manipulative. Help us not to live in fear that has got out of control. Set us free from superstition, we pray. May we be people of grace and truth. Will you give us a vision to see things like you do? Will you help us to trust you and to live in grace and love? Will you help us to look to you when we feel overwhelmed? God, I look to you.